hope you have your Bibles. I wish you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse number 18, which actually is a continuation uh, of chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. It just kind of flows through. Remember Paul's closing word in chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, uh, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So Paul is setting the stage to continue his thought uh, along the lines of commitment, but he's going to shift gears just a little bit, and he's going to be talking about this issue of committed to the foolishness of the cross. Where would we be without the cross? We'd be lost indeed. It's vitally important that we hear what God is trying to say to us today in regards to this message of being committed to the cross. When I think about hearing, I cannot help but think about that little fellow on the uh, TV, you know, can you hear me now? He supposedly lost his job, now he works for uh, somebody else, uh, but he used to have those commercials, you know, roaming all over America, can you hear me now, can you hear me now, can you hear me now? It kind of reminded me of a little story I read many years ago about a senior adult who went to the doctor. He went to the doctor and had a checkup, and his checkup went really well. I mean, he had a really good checkup. And then uh, he shared with the doctor, though, he says, although the checkup went real well, he said, I'm struggling at home. My wife cannot hear a word I'm saying. And the doctor said, well, we need to try to get to the bottom of that. He said, why don't we go ahead and start doing some tests? He said, uh, test number one, he said, I want you to go back home, and I want you to stand a good distance away from your wife, and I want you to ask her a question while her back is turned to you, and if you don't get a response, I want you to move up a little bit, ask that same question. If you don't get a response from her, step up, ask, the, you know, just so forth and so on until you get close enough to hear or she responds, she responds to your question. And uh, he said, okay, exci excited uh, as to being able to work on this problem because it was very frustrating to him. He got home, and when he walked in the door, sure enough, his wife was standing at the stove uh, with her back turned to him. And so he got about 20 feet away, and he said, Honey, what's for dinner? No response. So he moved up, and he got about 15 feet away, and he said, Honey, what's for dinner? No response. He got 10 feet away and said, Honey, what's for dinner? No response. So he got five feet away from his wife, and he said, Honey, what's for dinner? And she turned around and put her hands on her hips, and she said, for the fourth time, it's lasagna! <laughs> so listen, we'll make sure you're hearing me this morning. Very important that you're hearing the message God wants us to hear today. If you found your place in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let us stand in honor of reading of God's Word, verse number 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following. Notice the Scriptures here. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing uh, the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, 
and unto the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and the things which are despised. Hath God chosen, yea, the things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him ye are in Christ Jesus, whom God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorifieth, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You may be seated for prayer. Heavenly Father, the best that I know how, once again, I yield myself to you only to preach your word. Heavenly Father, I do pray you'd speak to our hearts this morning. Change us from the inside. May you receive glory. May you receive honor. May you receive praise. All power belongs to you. In the same Spirit of God that filled Paul, I ask in the name of Jesus for that same demonstration today. God, we know that you're present here. Your Holy Spirit is in this place and is roaming to and fro, is all over this building. I pray in the name of Jesus, you'd convict us where we need convicting. Strengthen us where we need strengthening. And God, may you receive glory, honor, and praise. We love you, and we thank you, and we ask your blessings now. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes the most unlikely people are used in the most unusual way to protect and preserve others. Several years ago, there was a carnival cruise line making its way to Costa Rica. It made port in Costa Rica and had a very special outing for all the senior adults that were on the ship. Many senior adults signed up for the excursion and they all debarked from the ship and got onto a bus for a tour of Costa Rica. The bus was filled and as they were traveling down the streets of Costa Rica, they got flagged down and when they got flagged down, they pulled over and three armed gunmen about the age of 20 boarded the, the uh, bus and began to hold up the people. On that bus was a retired Marine. He was 70 years of age, but yet sti still quite fit and still very much a Marine. When the man with the machine gun approached him, the man... His instincts took over after all those years in the military. He stood up, ripped the gun from the man's hand, spun the guy around, put him in a chokehold, sleeper hold move, and got, brought the man all the way down to the floor in that sleeper hold move. And to this day, the man never woke up. The two men that were there, the two other 20-year-olds that were there, immediately dropped their weapons, dropped the jewelry and things that they had stolen from the people, ran off the bus, and they never saw him again. 
Upon getting back to the United States of America, the Costa Rican government sent a report saying they would not press charges because the military man was simply protecting everybody on the bus. You see, you can take the Marine out of the military, but you can't take the military out of the Marine. And thanks be unto God that he stood that day of 70 years of age and protected his fellow bus members there in protecting them by standing up when he should have stood up and protected. The same can be true of the preaching ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. It is the, one of the primary responsibility in regards to the ministry to conduct unusual people or persons at this particular stage to preach an unusual message to protect and preserve God's people. Thus preaching, especially preaching Jesus Christ, is one of the most foundational tasks of the church. Here in this passage of Scripture, Paul explains that the gospel message seems like it is foolishness to those who are caught up in intellectualism, philosophy, and the preeminence of human reasoning. He begins by discussing how the gospel might appear to be foolish, and then later ends this passage of Scripture with the commitment that he has with preaching, or to preaching. We see once again in the book of 1 Corinthians that he's going to challenge us in the arena of our commitment. Today he's going to be challenging us in the arena of our commitment to being committed to the foolishness of the cross. Being committed to the foolishness of the cross. We're committed to a lot of things today. We're committed uh, in all different areas of our lives. But one of the areas that's vitally important that we stay committed to, and that is to the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. Several uh, years ago here at Maysville Baptist Church, maybe in two years ago, I was sitting in my office and there was a knock on the door and this gentleman came into my office and said, can I speak to you just for a minute? Never recognized him. As a matter of fact, he was just passing through. He was driving from Atlanta up to the Carolinas, and he heard uh, me preaching in a section there in commerce. You can pick up our, our uh, messages there on the local radio station. And he heard me preaching a message on the cross. He said, I was compelled to jump off of the interstate and to come by the church and to look and to see who was this man preaching this gospel message on the cross. He said, I just wanted to tell you thank you for preaching the cross. We don't hear about the cross much today. And he said, thank you for preaching that. And he says, I wonder, could I just pray for you? And right there that man put his hand upon me. And he prayed the sweetest prayer of God's protection and that God would use this church to reach this community, this region, and the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dear friend, may it be said of Maysville Baptist Church, one thing be true. We're committed to the foolishness of the cross. Let me show you three things about this passage of Scripture that I hope will encourage you and I hope will motivate us to stay committed to the foolishness of the cross. Number one, the first thing I want you to notice is the foolishness of its concept. The foolishness of its concept. Paul, in verses 18 through 25, talks about the foolishness of this concept of the cross. He tells us that for those that are lost, it is foolishness. It's as if he's talking about this cross that God uses. Is a, the preaching of the cross is a vehicle by which lost people hear the love of God, who they re, whom they realize who God sent His Son to die on Calvary's cross for our sin. And lost people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by the preaching of the cross. 
And in talking about this concept, he points out several things that are worthy to note. Let me show them to you if I could. Number one, he talks about the preaching of the cross. Look at verse number 18 with me. He says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to us which are, but to us which are saved, it is the power of God. Paul simply says there in this text that when you verbally proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless if it's behind a pulpit or whether it be face-to-face and just in personal evangelism, that verbal proclamation of the gospel is known as preaching. And the preaching of the cross, he says, is to them that are perishing. That word perish there in your Bible is a present tense verb. It means that today they are actively perishing. This morning in the 9.30 service, we had some folks get saved. They sat through the whole service perishing. They sat through the whole service perishing, knowing that if they died, they'd go to hell. Oh, listen to me, dear friend. God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, spoke to Solomon, and Solomon said, God has put eternity in your hearts. And if eternity be in your heart, when you hear a gospel message preached on the foolishness of the cross, you cannot help but think about your own personal eternity and where you're going to spend that eternity. And you come to the conclusion, without Christ, without Christ, without the cross, you'd be lost, damned, and on your way to hell. So we find here the preaching of the cross. He begins by saying, in the human perspective, it's foolish. The foolishness of, of, of preaching or the preaching of the cross, the concept there of the cross. Number two, let me show you a second thing. The plan of the Creator. The plan of the Creator, verses 19 through 21. The Scripture tells us here that God delights in negating so-called worldly wisdom. You understand that there's out there today what we know is worldly wisdom, wisdom. But then there's also biblical wisdom. And God, in His great love and sovereignty for you and I, wants us to live our lives through the prism of the Word of God. And in living our lives in those rose-colored glasses, in looking at this world through the eyes of the Word of God, in living in such a way, we live a righteous, separated life. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We share the greatest news of all all time, and that is the plan of the Creator, Jesus Christ. Saves. Notice what he says there in the text, in verse 19. He says, for it is written, which means somewhere in the Old Testament, we find these words, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. The word prudent there means intellectual. He's speaking of one's intellect. He's simply saying there in verse number 19, and he says this, you'll notice there, he says it is written. Where do you find that? Where is it written? It's found in Job, and it's also found in Isaiah, and it's also found in Jeremiah. In those Old Testament prophets, they said these words, God will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of those that are intellectual. Uh, You've heard me say it before, and I'm not trying to be facetious or silly. I'm I'm quite serious when I say it, although it does sound kind of funny, is there are people out there today who have been educated beyond their own intelligence. He tells us here in the text, he says, God will bring to nothing the understanding of those intellectuals. They will come to the place where they go, man, I got all this education, and I still was lost and died and made my way to hell. He says there in verse 20, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this word? Ha- world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Think about it. 
How foolish it is to say that you are the offspring or the product of a monkey. How foolish it is to think that there is not some intelligence within you by which God spoke and designed you to such a capacity that He's got a plan for your life. Anybody can go to the zoo and look around and see that we are different than the animals. And the difference is we were created in the image of God. And so in knowing we were created in the image of God, God in His great wisdom said, I'm going to save mankind not by human wisdom, but by godly wisdom. And the godly wisdom by which God chose to save souls is the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son Jesus Christ, the plan of the Creator. Watch this, number verses 22 and 23. We see also the perishing of the people. The perishing of the people. Uh, Let me call your attention to verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. You know what the Bible is saying right there? Man in his own wisdom could not figure out the saving plan of God. It had to come by the word of God and the preaching of God. The prophets may have said it, but you won't find it anywhere but in the word of God. Jesus Christ saves. Then he goes to verse, here it is in verse 22. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks require a seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. Those who were perishing, whether they be Jews or Greeks, are not able to reach God through their own system and through their own efforts. Jews demanded a supernatural sign for those that claimed they spoke from God. And the Greeks were constantly searching for some type of system of philosophy that depends on their own knowledge in order for them to get to heaven. Listen to me, dear friend. We're living in a day where all across the United States, all across the world today, there are religions that are sending people to hell because they're simply saying this, if you'll only be a good Buddhist, you'll get to heaven. If you'll only be a good Islamist, you'll get to heaven. If you'll only be a good Catholic, you'll get to heaven. If you'll be only be a good this, or a good that, or a good this other. No, listen, there's no, uten- you, listen, there is no universalism when it comes to the Word of God. Jesus said... I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's what he's saying there in the text. He's just simply saying, listen, in regards to this issue of the perishing of the people, those that are religious die and go to hell. That's why Jesus came. Those Judaizers were going to hell. Look, if we were to get on an airplane, me and you, and we were to fly over to Israel, and we were to get off the airplane and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know what they'd do to you and I? They'd lock us up. They would put us in prison. And they'd put us on the next flight back to the United States of America. Why? Because they'd say, that's foolish. Foolishness. It is by the foolishness of preaching that people are saved. Let me show you another thing right here. Uh, We also see the power of God. Or the power of the called. The power of the called, verse 24. Look at verse 24 with me, if you don't mind. The Bible says there in verse 24... Uh, But the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks require wisdom. He goes on to say there in the text, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks it is foolishness. Those who are called by God into salvation, whether they be uh, Jews or Greeks, can only come to Jesus Christ by the power of God. Now watch this. We see the power of God moving in the wisdom of God, And he moves in God's wisdom to such a capacity where he offers the sovereignty of God. That is to say, only God can do the saving. 
There's absolutely nothing I can do to save myself. But we also see God giving us the wonderful free will of man. He's giving us an opportunity to trust Him as as Savior and Lord. That is to say that Jesus Christ in His great wisdom says you can accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can neglect Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you can reject Jesus Christ as your Savior. In a crowd this large on a summer afternoon, it would not absolutely surprise me at all if there weren't some people in here that accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. And they are, they are identifying themselves with me because as I am preaching, they're, in their spirit, they're saying, yeah, that's right, preacher, yeah, that's right. And some are getting so excited, they can't keep it in on the inside, and so they got to say amen, or they got to say you preach it, or they got to say thank God, amen. They just can't help it, it just comes out. And then there are those that have neglected the gospel of Jesus Christ who sit there and go, I don't know, man, that's kind of crazy. You mean on a nondescript hill in a nondescript part of the world, somebody, God, sent somebody, His Son, to die for my sins, to pay the penalty for me? That just seems crazy. That just seems foolishness. But to you and I, it is the power of God. We understand it. We've seen the light. The scales have fallen from our eyes. Which brings us to number 5, verse 25, the fifth part of this, and that is the paradigm of God's wisdom. The paradigm of God's wisdom. Now remember, a paradigm is if you're looking at something one particular way, but then you get the facts on the matter and you realize you were looking at it the wrong way. Let me give you an illustration. The best illustration I know of a paradigm is, or a paradigm shift, is of a man that was on a, on a bus, and he was on this bus traveling from city to city. Behind him was a mother with two children. One baby, and the other, I don't know, the child had to be about six or seven years old. The child that was six or seven years old was kicking the seat in front of him where the man was, the businessman was sitting. He got so frustrated at, the, at this child, he stood up in his seat and he turned around and he said, Ma'am, you are the worst parent I think I've ever met. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You shouldn't even have children as uncontrolled as they are. They're nothing but a nuisance. You cannot keep them quiet. Here we are, got to ride this bus trip. Your son has kicked me in the back for the past 45 minutes. I don't know why in the world you don't yank them up by the ear and wear their tail out. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, lady. You shouldn't even have kids. To which the woman started crying. And she said, you're right. I'm not worth much. She said, I want to apologize to you, sir. You see, we're on our way back from these children's daddy's funeral. My husband died, and we're heading home from the funeral today. I'm so sorry that my kids are acting the way they are. They're just trying to mourn their father's death. Well, can you imagine how that man felt? He felt like a heel. He hung his head in shame. He said, ma'am, I didn't know. That's a paradigm shift. He saw things one way, but then realized the truth, and it changed his heart. Oh, listen to me. We see the paradigm of God's wisdom in verse 25. Look at it with me if you don't mind. The Bible says, because, the reason why God's done this, the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. 
We think in our minds, how in the world can an almighty, all-powerful God that can speak the world into existence simply let His Son be born of a virgin, live a sinless life, die on Calvary's cross? He's got all power. Why don't He just reach down and smite us all from the capacity that He changes our hearts and minds and we just follow after Him? I'll tell you the reason why. Because He loves you. And because God loves you, He wants you to love Him. And God gives you a choice whether or not you're going to love Him. Yes, we are condemned to die. Yes, we are condemned to hell. But thanks be unto God, through what we consider to be the foolishness of the concept of the gospel of Jesus Christ in relationship to the cross, God calls it His wisdom. Thank God for the cross. We see the foolishness of its concept. But watch this, Paul shifts gears very quickly. And in verses 26 through 31, he talks about the foolishness of the called. The foolishness of the called. So what do you mean, preacher, the foolishness of the called? Well, the first thing we've got to identify are who are the called. Who are the called? When he refers to the called, who is he referring to? Watch this. When he's talking about the called here in verses 26 through 31... He is talking about all the people that have trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. We know them today as Christians. Remember, Paul has already talked about those that were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ, which was a false Christ, by the way. Remember, we talked about that last week. And so Paul is saying just simply this. He's saying, look, I've already talked about those people that are rolling over in their graves because they're identifying themselves with people and not the true Christ. He says, that's ridiculous. He's saying, look, the called are those that walk after Jesus Christ and Christ alone. They are known as Christians. So when he talks about the called, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about those that have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. By the way, some people might say, well, who did Christ die for? That's a big debate today. Who did Jesus Christ die for? Well, the Bible tells us, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, the answer to that question. The Bible says that Jesus, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of truth. Jesus wants everybody to be saved. God wants everybody to be saved. But God in His great love and His great kindness gives us the opportunity to make that choice or not. Dear friend, listen, you can sit in here week in and week out, week in and week out, and you can even be made to come here and made to listen to the preaching of the gospel and be made to hear it and walk out of here rejecting Jesus Christ. And that is, listen, it's not okay, but God gives you the liberty to do it. And think about His great loving kindness to let us come week after week after week after week after week. You know what I've found? I have found if we've got a guest that's lost, that don't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord, they can last about three weeks rejecting Jesus Christ. But on that fourth week, am I telling the truth, brother? About on that fourth week, they get saved and give their heart to Christ. Which tells me it takes about three weeks for a hard heart to be broken through with the Word of the living God. Oh, listen to me. Maybe you've been here for the past three weeks. Maybe this is your fourth week. And maybe you've been coming here. And maybe you've been listening to the preaching of the Word of God. And to you, you thought it was foolishness. And the whole time, the Holy Spirit's been hammering your heart. Hammering away. Hammering away to say, listen, I'm calling you. I'm drawing you. I want you. I want everybody to be saved. 
I want you to notice with me in this text, in verses 26 through 31, I want you to notice three distinguishing marks of a Christian. Number one, Paul talks about their qualifying. They're qualifying. Uh, he says there are those that are qualified. Uh, we have a group of uh, teenagers and, uh, up uh, at a 3D shoot up in Illinois. In order for them to shoot in nationals, they had to qualify. And so we find the qualifying, if you would, in this section that Paul talks about the qualifying of the called. Notice what he says there. He says, For ye see your calling brethren. He says, Brothers and sisters, you know when you were called. You, you know how we say it today? Do you remember the day you got saved? That's what he's saying. Do you remember the day you got saved? You see your calling. How that not many wise uh, men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Dear friend, what he's saying here is when you came, you didn't come in the flesh boasting, going, Here I come, I'm coming, I'm getting saved today, I'm getting saved. I've been a good boy, I've been a good girl, I went to Sunday school, I know the Ten Commandments, I've been baptized, I'm going to heaven today. No, that doesn't do anything but send you to hell. He says, You remember your calling. I was 14 years old. I was sitting about on the second or third row. The Spirit of God was pounding me, was impacting my life. The gospel was penetrating my hard heart. And I remember at the invitation time, I could not wait any longer. I had to come and I had to get saved. I knew my calling. What about you? Do you know the day you got saved? Do you remember the time? Do you remember the experience of your salvation? He just simply says here in the text that there were not many believers who were from the ranks of the intellectuals, the ruling leaders, the rich aristocracy of the day. There were not many rich people coming to Jesus Christ. I was a poor 14-year-old boy. fact of the matter is, if we were to all testify, every one of us would say we were poor in some capacity when we came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Why is that? Why does it seem there, according to the Word of God, that not many wise men after the flesh come to Christ, not many mighty come to Christ, not many noble are called. Why is that? I'll tell you the reason why. The reason why is because they're filled with such self-pride. They think they can earn their way to heaven. Jesus said it best in Mark chapter 10, verse 25, when He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. We see they're qualifying. Number two, we also see they're standing. Look at verse 27. In verses 27 through 29, he says, The ones who are saved are those whom the world views as foolish. I promise you, if you're a born-again child of God, there's somebody that thinks you're crazy. There he is. Uh, there's somebody that thinks you're weak. Uh, there's somebody that thinks you should not exist. Uh, that you are absol you've absolutely lost your mind. You, you are a simpleton would be another illustration. But why do people think that way? Why is it that the intellectuals of our day think that you and I are absolutely dummies? I'll tell you the reason why. Because anytime you talk about surrender, surrender means defeat. And we have come to the realization that we cannot save ourselves. We've been defeated by sin. And because of Jesus Christ and the love that He has for you and I, Paid the price for our sins. And as He rose again on the third day, victorious over death, hell, and the grave, we find our victory in Him. And so in order to win, you first got to realize you got to lose. In order to be saved, you got to first realize you're lost. And in order to go up, you got to first realize you got to give up. 
And that's totally contrary to the way that America works today. America works from the perspective that you step on as many people as you got to step on. You do whatever you need to do to get wherever you need to go. And religiously, it doesn't matter. You only look out for number one. No, I thank God God didn't have that attitude. He didn't think about, i got to look out for number one. He said, i got to look out for everyone. And he died on Calvary's cross for our sins. We see here in this text, they're qualifying. We see they're standing. But let me show you something else. You see they're boasting. What's the boasting of the call? Look at verse 30. The Bible tells us here in verse number 30 and verse number 31, He says, But to him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made into wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorifieth, let him glory in the Lord. Where's our boasting? It's not in ourselves. Man, I'm ashamed when I think about the day I got saved, and I think about today, and I think about the ups and the downs. Man, I think about that time when Alyssa got sick and was in the hospital. Man, I was in sackcloth and ashes, wondering why in the world I pulled up my wife and moved to Georgia of all places when I was happy in Alabama at a little church opening the doors. Had 90-something students coming in, and God was moving, people being baptized, being saved. Why in the world? And pulled up and moved up here to Lodi Bar. Why in the world did God do this to me? Uh, now my daughter's sick. Church can't even afford insurance for me. Bless God. I don't have any insurance. I don't got nothing. God, why are you doing this to me? I'm ashamed of that. And then I think about His great love towards me. And that even in my darkest times, in the times of my deepest depression, Jesus said, I love you. The true wisdom of God was contained in His plan of salvation through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It is by this plan, and this plan alone, you and I as a born-again child of God have access to what does he say right there? Notice the text. We have access to wisdom. We have access to righteousness. We have access to sanctification. And we have access to redemption. This is the foolishness of the called. That God in his great love would save us not unto perfection but unto righteousness and sanctification. You know what he's saying here? Watch this. When you got saved, you were saved, okay? The day you got saved, you, got, you were saved, washed in the blood. You were saved from your past sins, you're saved from your present sins, and you're saved from your future sins. The Holy Spirit that's been deposited inside of you is now a, watch this, your conscience is your goad, it's a goad. Your conscience goads you when you do wrong. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is your guide pointing you back to Jesus Christ. So that's the difference between believers and non-believers. In a believer's life, your conscience is your goad. And the Holy Spirit is your guide. It's vitally important to understand. Because you'll hear people say, well, let your conscience be your guide. You better be careful. The Bible talks about that. If you're letting your conscience be your guide, you're lost and you're on your way to hell and you need to be saved. But if you are born again and you've got the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, the Holy Spirit of God is your guide. 
and your conscience is your goad, and your conscience goads you when you do wrong. Oh, that's, oh, that's not right. And then the convicting power of the Holy Spirit falls on you, and you see 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 that says, if you will ask God, if you will ask God to forgive you of your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That passage is written to Christians. So you've been saved, you're being saved, you will be saved. Thanks be to God one day when we shed these tents, man, when we let these things down to the ground, uh, we're going to be with Jesus Christ. We don't have to foot put up and play with sin anymore. It'll be all gone. Thanks be to God. May it be so quickly, Lord Jesus. Let me give you a third thing very quickly. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I can be done at 12. I can. I really can. I promise. The foolishness of the clergy. Some of you doubt. Some of you doubt. Uh, the foolishness of the clergy. In chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, Paul begins to talk about the gospel to such a capacity that he just simply says this. The gospel has no claim to wisdom on the basis, watch this, of the superiority of its preachers. L let me say it again. Don't miss this. The gospel has no claim to wisdom on the basis of the superiority of its preachers. Paul had come to Corinth from Athens... He was there, that was the headquarters of Greek philosophy. He stood in the court and he absolutely, Acts chapter 17, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be unto God, somebody in that courtroom or that hearing was converted, Acts 17, 34. It was nothing of Paul's doing. The only boldness that Paul had was the boldness that God gave him to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know this is hard to believe. I didn't say this in the last two services. But I, for some reason, I feel like I need to say it here. I know this is hard to believe, but I am a very timid individual. I am. For the most part, I'm an introvert. My grandmother told me I'd make a good hobo. Just get on a train and ride it. You ask my wife, she'll tell you the happiest. I'm happy. I love being with her. I love being with my kids. But I can be just as content just being by myself. I don't know why. I don't know why. It bothers me a little bit that I can be content. It's not that I'm an isolationist. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination. I need people in my life. But I'm telling you, as God is my witness, I'd rather be behind the scenes instead of standing up before and proclamating and preaching and proclaiming. But there's a deep-seated desire inside of me that I got when I got saved. I can't explain it. And bless God, I can't shut up about it. i got to tell you, Jesus saved! So how in the world could God do something like that? I don't know, but he did it to me. I've doubted a lot of things. How about this? I heard Adrian Rogers say this, and I can testify to this fact. There have been times Adrian Rogers said in his life he doubted his salvation, but he's never doubted his calling. That's what he said. He said, there have been times in my life when he was alive that I doubted my salvation. It's how I struggled God could save somebody like me. He said, but I've never doubted God's call on my life to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul mentions here in this passage of Scripture five points regarding the preaching of the gospel. The first thing he talks about is his speech. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, And I, brethren, came to you, not with the excellency of speech or with wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. You know what that says? When he came and preached the gospel, he probably used y'all and ain't, and he put, put prepositions at the end of sentences. He probably, bless God, said, where y'all at? That's what he says. His speech 
He said, I didn't come with the mastery over the English language. Bless God, neither did I. I could, have, I could go with that. Number two, his subject. His subject. What was his subject? Uh, verse number two says, that for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is, Paul deliberately limited his message to one thing, Jesus Christ. Number three, his strength. Where did he draw his strength? He says it right here. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He said, in and of myself, I am a very timid man. He said, but I came to you to such a capacity that you didn't trust in my own strength or my own ability. He said, I demonstrated the personal inadequacies and limitations of my own life. I've had people tell me through the course of these three years that I've been here with you. And by the way, it'll be four in August. I'm looking forward uh, to celebrating year four uh, here with you at Maysville Baptist Church. But some of you have said over these past years, you're the most unusual preacher I think I've ever met. So you, you just tell us just things that happen in your life. As a matter of fact, someone said to, today, Miriam was talking to somebody this morning, 815 service, about uh, the stories that I tell. And uh, this individual came up and said, man, said, that's just amazing. Said, I talked to your wife, and your wife said that most of those stories you tell, really, they really are true. They are. You can't make this stuff up. It really is my life. But here's one thing you need to know. This morning when I got up and I put these britches on, I put them on one leg at a time. Man, when I got out of bed, this right ankle, I don't know what in the world was a problem, but man, it did. I, had a, I had a catch in my giddy-up, and man, I just, man, trying to work that thing out. I just, look, what's happening? I'll tell you what's happening. I'm dying. Say, so, oh, dear Lord, you got some kind of disease? No, I'm just dying. I'm getting older. I'm just, at 40, my eyes went out. I'm, I'm 43 now. I'm, I'm just dying. I'm, I mean, that's just part of life. Just, here's what Paul was saying. I was just real. I'm just real. Paul's, I'm not trying to be Socrates. I'm, I'm not trying to be some, some great theologian. He says, I'm just coming to you preaching a simple message. Jesus saves. Right. Number uh, four, his style. Look right here very quickly. There's only five. I'm done. Verse five. Excuse me, verse four. Look at his style. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of God. I promise you, if God does anything in this service at the invitation, it'll be because of the power of God and not what I said. And what Paul's saying is just simply this. I didn't try to bait and switch you. I didn't say, look over here at this hand while I'm doing something funny over here with this hand. He said, I was real. I'm just trying to be real and preach the power of God. And then number five is simplicity. Paul talks about the simple approach that he used. Look at what he says in verse five. He says that your faith uh, should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He said when you get saved, you just say, man, God is such a powerful God. God can take a sin-sick soul and take that sin-sick soul and move them from a sin-sickness into healing and heal an individual to capacity where they know that when they die, they're going to heaven. So I close with this question. When you die, and you will, because you like me, some of you even older than me, I don't know if your ankles went out, so is your back, your head, your mind, and your hair. What does that mean? You're getting closer to death. As a matter of fact, every one of us are a heartbeat away from death. You ever thought about that? We're one heartbeat away from death. So let me ask you this. God forbid, but if today was the day and you died in your sin, if you died today, where would you go? There's only one or two places. There's heaven and there's hell. The Bible says that 
Heaven is awaiting the final home of true believers. Hell was not designed for mankind. But because of the sin nature and the rejection of Jesus Christ as Messiah, when men die and women die and teenagers die without Christ, they go to hell. We saw in the Scriptures today, Jesus does not want anybody to go to hell. He wants everybody to be saved. But He loves you enough not to make you a robot. And He wants you to choose today to trust Him as Savior. Let's bow for prayer. If you're here today and you want to trust Jesus as Savior, you're tired of playing games. You're tired of playing the game of religion. You're tired of getting hung up on theology. You're sick of following after Calvin and Wesley and all the rest of them out there. But today's the day you need to follow after Christ and what He did on Calvary's cross. From your heart to God's heart, why don't you say something like this to the Lord? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And this morning, I ask you to save me. Thank you for saving me. I'll live for you. In Jesus' name.